Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction you must stay at home. So, on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. So following the science is a phrase we've heard a lot of in the past year. We've also heard a lot of the phrase anti-science. And something seems to have happened, or at least it seems to have been revealed over the past year, which is that science has changed from being a mode of inquiry to some sort of form of authority that you are not allowed to question. In order to try to understand what exactly has happened, uh, we have a great thinker with us today, Matthew B. Crawford. You can't really follow the science because Science doesn't lead anywhere. It can illuminate various courses of action, for example, by uh, quantifying the risks that attend each. It can help to specify the trade-offs, but it can't make the choices for us. A writer, a philosopher, an academic, and also a mechanic. Hi, Matt. Hey, Freddie. Good to see you. So what have you seen happen over the past year, or, or what is it that you have notice that may have been happening for some time before that? Well, I think with the pandemic, um, the question of political legitimacy that hangs over uh, rule by experts, which is a longstanding question, uh, has come to mass awareness. It's kind of on on everyone's minds. Um, so we've seen this extraordinary extension of expert jurisdiction over every domain of life, really. <clears throat> so, of course, this entails <clears throat> a really a transfer of sovereignty from democratic to technocratic institutions. I think it also uh, involves something deeper, which is a... Um, sort of delegitimizing of common sense as a guide to action. 
Um, and we have now quite a prominent pattern of government by emergency that I think extends um, beyond the pandemic. And resistance to this is often characterized as anti-science. Uh, and I think the basic difficulty is that uh, you can't really follow the science because science doesn't lead anywhere. Um, it can illuminate various courses of action, for example, by uh, quantifying the risks that attend each. It can help to specify the trade-offs, um, but it can't make uh, the choices for us. And I think pretending otherwise is a way for uh, decision makers to um, kind of avoid responsibility for the choices they make on our behalf. So it's part, in a way, of this devolving of power upwards to technocratic or expert bodies that bypasses having a political discussion about them and actually makes it delegitimizes people's instincts or people's natural intuitions on how to behave. Yeah, that's the, I think the sort of the deepest current here is, um, you know, is experience a, an adequate guide to reality? And, you know, the answer is yes and no. Um, but clearly there's a um, kind of blossoming uh, infatuation, I would say, among uh, sort of institutional players in the West and sort of centrist opinion uh, in, in infatuation with Chinese style governance, where, um, you know, democracy is very much in bad odor these days. And I think you see people looking to China for, uh, uh, for a model of, of uh, social control. So I, I definitely want to come back to China. But just to spell this out then, for a lot of people watching, this has been a weird year because people may have felt they were pro-science in favor of all of the wonderful discoveries that science has given to us and helping with people's health and all sorts of things. But they may have felt skeptical of some of the consensus scientific opinions and they were hard to balance those two uh, impulses. And, and you talk about a distinction between science and scientism. And I wonder if you could just explain what that means. Yeah, well, um, you know, one way that, you know, it's, it's the pride of science to be falsifiable, right? This is what distinguishes it from religion. You can prove um, it wrong. In other words, yes, it can be. It's subject to empirical test, and yes, it exposes itself to being um, falsified. It's it's there's a kind of openness there. So the problem is when science is pressed into duty as authority, and you want to get people to behave a certain way, you have to assert certainty, right? I mean, it would be a very strange sort of. Uh, authority that insists on the provisional character of its own sort of grasp of reality, right? So science has to be transformed into something more like religion in order to serve the function that we've assigned it of, um, you know, as authority. So that's the basic contradiction I think that we're we're dealing with in. Uh, and that is, that is I, I would call that scientism. It's a science as ideology, as a sort of quasi-religious uh, form of authority. So it's science shorn of its 
natural humility or openness to being questioned? Science got big um, in the really around World War II and thereafter uh, became highly institutionalized and bureaucratized. And part of the problem is that you simply need a lot of resources and a lot of collaboration to do science at the cutting edge. Um, but this has had the effect of... Um, so just to expand thing, on that, Matt, so yeah. you tell the story of how when you were a kid, your dad used to do science experiments and they actually became pretty famous. What was that about? Yeah, so my dad was a physics professor at Berkeley. <clears throat> and um, so, yeah, he used to do experiments around the house. He called it kitchen physics, uh, just, you know, investigating things that you can um, do with your own, see things with your own eyes and use things around the house to do experiments. And um, in retrospect, I'm impressed that he made time to do this even while working at the frontiers of particle physics at uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And I think it was simply for the intellectual refreshment of doing science in that kind of intimate scale where uh, things are directly accessible uh, without um, you know, large instruments. So it's a, it's a kind of reminder of the individual inquiry component of science, which gets lost if you're in a team of hundreds and hundreds of people. Sure. And it's, it's really the image we have of what science is, right? The, this picture of Galileo going up into the leaning tower of Pisa to drop things and uh, see how fast they fall. Um, and then, of course, you know, later Galileo was brought before the Inquisition for his uh, establishing that the Earth revolves around the sun. And uh, according to the lore, he recanted to save his skin, but then under his breath, he says, but it does move. So this is, I think this uh, anecdote sort of crystallizes this dichotomy we have of here's science with its devotion to truth. Uh, and over here is authority, whether ecclesiastical or political, and the two were kind of really opposed. And so that's... That's an image that stands in stark contrast to the present where precisely science is invoked as the authority. So that just kind of brings, um, crystallizes the basic problem. So we've moved from the point which you described your dad was at making experiments uh, at home to science where, as you mentioned, the CERN, for example, the uh, uh, Nuclear Research Institute in Switzerland is miles and miles in size, and it needs huge institutions and governments to even enable experiments to happen. And the whole process of funding and uh, group corporate experiments has just changed the nature of science into something quite different. Yeah, it is uh, inherently social in its practice. And with that comes certain entailments. Um, and I think uh, sort of the, the, the crisis of scientific um, um, authority right now, that is the fact that public opinion has come untethered from scientific expertise and is newly assertive against it, 
I think that's due to this mismatch that's developed between the idealized picture we have of science as this activity of the solitary mind and the reality of it, which is that it's uh, institutionalized, bureaucratic, which means that it's inherently political. That's, that's really the point. There's no such thing as, well, I guess you could say politicized science is the only kind there is in, in a kind of, you know, fairly non-pejorative sense here. So do you think it actually acts in its modern incarnation, 21st century science, as a magnet to different kinds of people in some way, that people who are more prone to bureaucratic thinking or they don't mind submitting endless funding applications and working to try and secure the approval of big international institutions, whilst the heretic individual-minded scientist is less keen to be part of the game now. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there is a kind of self-selection process. Um, someone who has a taste for, <clears throat> you know, building a research empire and, you know, takes political talent. And then there's also, I think, in addition to that self-selection, there's a, there's a formation, uh, intellectual and character formation that's accomplished by spending time in that kind of environment um, where, um, you know, and any the way any profession reproduces itself is by kind of forming people in its image. And so these, um, this kind of political talent is, uh, you could say it's orthogonal to the underlying truth motive of science. So the question is, where do the incentives lie? Well, if you're in a university, it's bringing in research support is the metric of your success, career success, not, you know, contributing to some fundamentally new understanding. So the incentive structures are, uh, are you know, inherently, again, social and institutional and uh, thereby political. So you mentioned you know, research support means money, basically, doesn't it? And a lot of, it's not just scientists, by the way, it's a lot of academics these days. Half their job is to try and secure funding from various organizations. And of course, these non-governmental organizations, such as the Bill Gates Foundation, um, Soros, the Clinton Foundation, all of these big um, foundations, as well as here we have the Wellcome Trust here in the UK and many others, they act as the arbiters of what will or won't not go ahead as a scientific endeavor. And I wonder what your thoughts were on that. Is that a positive development? You know, NGOs act, uh, yeah, they're, they're funneling opinion and resources to um, scientific bodies that are serving some social purpose or another, right? Because you could say the function of NGOs is to convert the priorities of various oligarchs into political currency through the alchemy of expertise plus high moral posturing, which in combination, uh, sort of the catnip of uh, cosmopolitan opinion. So that sounds kind of sinister there. I mean, <laughs> should, what, what, should we be looking at these NGOs as cynical bodies that are there for the furtherance of a worldview of a particular individual who happens to have made a lot of money or gained a lot of power? Should we be 
worried about them, or do you think it's all fine? I would think it's, well, so what is the alternative? Um, you know, commercial science is also subject to uh, distortions. Um, you know, the bottom line, the commercial bottom line doesn't, uh, you know, you could say, well, that exercise is a disciplining function on research, but that doesn't automatically line up with the truth motive. I mean, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies famously, um, you know, have uh, have distorted uh, the, the, the processes of research. Now, of course, I say that at a moment when uh, we're all massively indebted to this accomplishment of the pharmaceutical companies, right? The development of the mRNA vaccines is hugely consequ consequential. But it's interesting that this happened uh, in commercial laboratories that were temporarily relieved of the burden to stoke consumer demand or, you know, pump the, uh, you know, their their uh, kind of financial analyst assessment of the companies. Relieved of that by massive government support, so it was a, it was an unusual moment when science could proceed without the pressure, the commercial pressures, or the kind of organized political lobbies that so often channel uh, again the sort of NGO support. The last example of this, which you mention in your unheard essay, is ClimateGate, where there were various sort of scientific rules that were broken by researchers into climate science and that then became a big scandal and what were your learnings from reading about that yeah so this was a very famous episode um in which um climate researchers their, their emails were hacked and you know none of us would i think with withstand having our private communications exposed in this way, so um, so you have to sort of be charitable in your in your reading of this. But in fact, one thing that emerged was uh, them really stonewalling against requests for the data, um, and this was at a time when a lot of scientific communities were developing. Uh, a new norm of data sharing because of the replication crisis that has really uh, was a big deal in science in the last um, 20 years. So the, the you know, climate gate, there's a lot of baggage around it. It was a big political kind of football, but the interesting thing to emerge from it, I think, is the idea that there's such a thing as a research cartel that is highly self-protective and has to assert a monopoly of knowledge and also um, kind of assert a, a moratorium on the asking of questions and noticing of patterns if they fall out view outside um, the established consensus and also uh, kind of um, when a challenge is issued to the consensus from an outsider often they're not, you know, an outsider who's, who's presenting facts and arguments. These aren't met in kind, but are met rather with de denunciation. And in that way, uh, an epistemic challenge to the institution is converted into 
sort of moral conflict between good people and bad people because the challenger is said to be trafficking in disinformation for nefarious purposes. So this is a pattern that you can you can find in a number of areas. And simply the climate gate thing was, is one of the more well-documented and that's why it uh, serves as an interesting case study for getting at this um, problem. So you mentioned the moral aspect there. In a way, that's the final tool in the armory of a research cartel, isn't it? Because once, they've, once they're protected and once they don't want dissent and they don't want too many questions, if they can achieve a moral superiority over anyone asking questions, it's case closed. Yeah, I think the, um, <clears throat> the internet has made it very difficult to maintain a um, sort of knowledge monopoly or, uh, you know, a cartel of expertise because information flows so free so freely and this has led to this kind of crisis of legitimacy because the failures of institutional knowledge you can no longer keep them secret they go viral on the internet and they're disseminated with relish right by sort of partisans and um, you know dissidents they they sort of excite our dissident energies um, and so what has been the response to this problem? Um, well, it's been a kind of uh, desperate move, I think, to uh, a, a kind of moralism where, um, you know, think about uh, the arrival of Greta Thunberg in the climate space. So, uh, so she brings this sort of, how dare you is her her famous phrase. So it's a kind of moral energy of denunciation that seems to to act to shore up um, the consensus. And of course, celebrities who speak uh, in this way always speak with certainty. So you're now very far from the realm of kind of uh, anything being falsifiable or um, or open. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So something, an idea or a concept or a statement graduates suddenly into the realm of things that can't be questioned. And at that point, all of the machinery of celebrities and Greta Thunberg type characters comes into play and anyone who questions it at that point is then anti-science or a moral bad person in some way. So what you see is the, uh, the, the kind of victimology, I think, joining hands with scientism uh, sort of. So for example, the summer of 2020 with the George Floyd riots happening or protests happening at the same time as the pandemic, what you saw was the moral energy of anti-racism got harnessed to the scientific authority of public health, right? So you had public health uh, organs saying that you know white supremacism is a public health emergency, so much so that we should suspend social distancing mandates for the sake of protests. So the question is, how did the description of America as white supremacists get converted into a scientific sounding claim? I mean, it's a striking thing, uh, because while um, that kind of critique of America and of the West generally has been circulating for decades, it usually hasn't been attached to um, strictly technical organs and strictly technical matters. So that's new, is the joining of a kind of technocratic scientism and victimology. So that, I think, needs to be accounted for. And I think one way to begin thinking about it might be that, um, you know, since 2016, uh, in, in, in America, you had really a sorting of the population into good people and bad people. I.e. people who liked Trump versus people who didn't? Yes, precisely so. So you have Lucifer as the president, um, and then you have the resistance. So that's the basic sort of Manichaean schema that has been overlaid over everything in the United States. And so there's a question mark that hangs over your head uh, if, if you're someone who works in an institution, especially. And the question is the, uh, the strength and sincerity of your anti-racism, because that's what decides which side of this divide you're on. And so um, 
there's a kind of precariousness to, especially I think white professionals who work in institutions. And I think the confluence of the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter moment offered an opportunity to convert that moral precarity into moral authority by, by making this move whereby now speaking as a public health professional, I am, in, I am informing you that white supremacism is a, is a public health emergency. So um, it's, a, it's kind of a neat move whereby you, you, uh, you know, I think the, the, what happened is that uh, the, this cloud hanging over one's head maybe makes one more ready to sign on to uh, demands of activists and sort of sign on to the idea that society needs to be radically transformed. So it's actually, a, it's actually trying to save yourself, ultimately. So it takes us back to a kind of elect and the damned situation in, in sort of Christian Europe centuries ago. Um, I mean, one thing I did notice, I wonder what your thoughts are, is earlier in the pandemic at the start, this Manichaean good or evil uh, dichotomy had flipped the other way. So at, at the beginning, it was talk about this virus was a racist or it was a xenophobic concept. Uh, and there were moves to go and hug a Chinese person to show that you weren't taken in by this xenophobic talk of virus. And famously, uh, Trump's uh, decision to close the borders was, was talked about as illiberal. And then it sort of flipped, didn't it? And suddenly yeah. everyone ran the other way. Yeah, the, the, just the arbitrariness of it is, I think, did a, went a long way toward kind of throwing into question the whole, uh, you know, public health apparatus. And yeah, so it often seemed to be taking its bearings from whatever Trump was in favor of, we have to be against. So the hydroxychloroquine, whatever the hell it was called, um, you know, the, just the politics of, of a molecule. Um, it became it, an evil it, mo molecule. An evil molecule. And the absurdities of this were so patent <clears throat> that, you know, the credibility of these pronouncements just, be, I mean, it became a joke. So this is actually quite dangerous, Matt, isn't it? Yeah. Because there should be some authority with established scientific principles. I think even, even people who want a constantly questioned, sceptical world would still say that once, you know, we know that antibiotics are good for bacterial infections, um, we don't want people questioning that every time they get prescribed antibiotics, for example. So some authority attached to scientific principles is a good thing, but it's like it's been overreached. And the danger now is that everything will be sus subject to skepticism and anything goes again. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would want to insist here on a strong distinction between science and scientism, because it's precisely the opportunity to invoke science as a cover for decisions that um, may not be scientific in their kind of, you know, basic motivations. That's what uh, has this distorting effect, where in fact you're not deferring to science. You're you're um, 
just invoking science to avoid explicitly taking responsibility for making one decision rather than another. Um, but, but what's the so bad I, outcome though of this? I mean, what what should we be worried about if if the whole of society starts agreeing with your analysis? Where does that take us? I guess I would say that um, it's precisely if you want to preserve um, science, the integrity of science, you have to delimit uh, this reflex of invoking it um, in a sort of demagogic way for the sake of manipulating the population. I think politicians have to uh, have to maybe state the the the, um, the trade-offs and try to lay out for the public the actual logic of different courses of action. Once you do so, it, it becomes political, right? Because one course of action will will prefer some part of the population. So for example, small business owners, right, who are anti-lockdown versus people who work in the sort of credentialed professional institutional economy who can zoom in, work from work. Their interests are opposed, you know, full stop. So in deciding lockdowns, you want to make these things explicit rather than say simply follow the science. Well, if the science here is epidemiologists, they're going to give you a clear consensus. Keep the economy shuttered will, you know, s slow the spread of the virus. So the science is clear, but that's not uh, what we're doing here. We're deciding between two opposed interests. And I think what statesmanship is, is the ability to not sort of hide these things, but articulate them. Uh, in a way that clarifies and that allows uh, political contestation to happen rather than to kind of smother it under abstractions that um, that doesn't work anymore because it's so obvious that that's what's going on and it just increases public rage. Yeah, that kind of statesmanship, as you call it, has been in pretty short supply, I'd say, over the past year. And I can't think of many countries that have done that in great abundance. We, we said we'd talk again about China when you mentioned it at the start. So let's come back to China. Uh, that famous quote that Professor Neil Ferguson said in an interview with the Times of London, that they never thought they could get away with mandatory stay at home orders for the entire population. But then once China did it, and once Italy did it, they realized they could get away with it. What's your reflection on, on that? Well, China did it <clears throat> as we expected they would. The, um, the really revelatory event was that Italy did it and got away with it. So yeah, as, as, as Neil Ferguson said, this, this, is, um, this is when we realized maybe we could. And, and at this point, lockdowns feel inevitable. So something that had seemed inconceivable now feels inevitable. And this complete inversion happened in a matter of months. So why did it seem inconceivable before? Well, you know, 
the West Western nations had contingency plans for pandemics in place, and they were predicated on the idea that you would try to isolate the vulnerable and those already infected. You wouldn't lock up people who are healthy in their houses. Why? Well, because of these kind of principles we have of non-coercion and the autonomy of individuals and all that. But somehow these bedrock Western principles um, went out the window. Now, there's surely some threshold of threat beyond which such liberal principles become an unaffordable luxury. So the question is, was this threat dire enough? Well, there it becomes interesting because the public's perception of the threat is orders of magnitude inflated beyond what it actually is. I mean, when you poll people, like in Britain, they polled, you know, how many people do you think have died of COVID? And people think it's, you know, six to 10% of the population when it, in fact it's, you know, like a, a tenth of 1%. So what does that say? Well, it means there's been a lot of fear mongering, which is obvious. And in the West, public opinion really matters in a way that it doesn't in China. So if you want to get people to do something, uh, the fear can't come from the state, from outside. It has to come from inside, from a mental state in the individual. And I think that, um, so our means of social control is not brute force, it's fear-mongering. And fear-mongering clearly is, you know, a prominent part of the business model of mass media, but that seems to be get, getting integrated with state functions in a sort of symbiosis. Those opinion polls, there's been a sort of circular logic to them, hasn't there? Because the reason people were in favor of measures against the virus was because they were frightened about the virus. And the reason they were frightened about the virus was because they had been told that it was frightening. Um, and so we're now in a slightly circular world where the government has a campaign about something, population then responds to it with the obvious response, which is fear in this instance. And then the government points to opinion polls saying, look, the population wants this, therefore we must do more of it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it increasingly feels like a, a propaganda state um, with the symbiosis between mass media and uh, government, where here we're talking about technocratic organs where, um, you know, again, expertise is invoked um, for the sake of social control. And you guys had Lord Sumption on, you did this, this interview with him, where he really, he made a very powerful case, I thought, um, that the government has all kinds of powers, has vast powers that it does not normally exercise. And the only thing that stops it from doing so is convention. And convention is something fragile. Um, and once you sort of cross that line into, um, you know, going ahead and using these coercive powers, it's very hard to uncross that line it's like the, the spell is broken. Uh, so the question is, can we go back to being not China? Uh, this, that is sort of the, the question, isn't it? And what's your answer to that question? I mean, now we're, the restrictions are being lifted, summer is developing, and most people are beginning to feel more cheerful, and the whole thing is beginning to recede into the rearview mirror a bit like a bad dream, 
Do you think we should now think of our society and our reality as fundamentally different to how it was before, or at least revealed to be fundamentally more fragile than it was before? Or do you think we can go ahead and let the waters close in and just forget all about it? Well, it does seem like the <clears throat> the pandemic and our response to it has had an an educative effect on people in a in a disturbing way. Where I think there's a lot of people. I live in California. A lot of people in places like here that really don't want to go back to the way it was before. Um, there's a, some positive attraction to social distancing and wearing masks. And I don't think it's simply, um, you know, virtue signaling or something like that. It's, you know, it's, um, I don't know, it's a kind of atomization of society and maybe uh, a relief from the kind of discomforts one has with more social interaction. I mean, it's a, it's a deep question for kind of anthropologists and sociologists over the next few decades, I think, to, to think about what's been going on. Well, one, one idea I had was actually from one of your earlier books, from The World Beyond Your Head, where you make a particular study of people who are addicted to gambling in Las Vegas. And they're standing there pulling these one-armed bandits, as they're called. And your inquiry was, what was it about that that they found attractive? Why did they like that? repetitive experience so much. And I think your conclusion was that there was something about the reduction in available choices that was weirdly compelling to people because it, it meant that the whole scary world was shut down into something more manageable with fewer available options. And that became addictive. Perhaps there's something of that same mechanism in people's attraction to lockdown. I, I like that suggestion. <clears throat> I wish I'd thought of it. Um... <laughs> <laughs> the the parallel that you mentioned, yeah, it's sort of a narrowing of one's world to something that is more fully within your control. I think maybe that's the appeal. Um, a as a kind of um, protecting yourself from uh, there's a kind of heteronomy to use Kant's word of of other people. They they impinge upon your your freedoms, your your self-conception, just your sense of having uh, your world under your own control. Um, so that's... It's exhausting. And I think we all have an element of that, that life returns and you sort of remember how exhausting life was before or how, you know, there were so many moments that could be fraught or decisions to make. And it all seems, oh, well, maybe we'll come back to real life next week and stay another week doing not very much. So are we a, are we an exhausted society? Uh, and this is, we're sort of welcoming this uh, this sort of death throw. I don't know. Um, Sounds bleak, Matt. <laughs> well, you called me. You knew you were going to get something <laughs> bleak. I will say that given the uh, the sort of social strictures against getting together, there is an added relish doing so, right? Uh, sort of the speakeasy mentality. So I think, uh, well, here's a question. Will, will we see a, um, a renewed kind of dissident energy of, um, 
I don't know, cells of uh, resistance, where, I don't know, it sort of adds to the feeling of solidarity among people when you're um, doing something naughty simply by getting together. Well, I've noticed here in London that the handshake has become a symbol of dissent. Uh, ah. and when you meet someone and they put out their hand and if you return with a flesh to flesh contact, there is a spark of dissent energy and you both, it's like a Freemason uh, signal yes. in previous <laughs> centuries that you both say, aha, we both are uh, in some way against this. Right, so any handshake is like a secret handshake. <laughs> I like that. That's where we've got to. Uh, Matt Crawford, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts and discussing it with us today. Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure, Freddie. Thank you. Uh, Matt's essay is up or on Unheard this week, and uh, do check it out, unheard.com. That was him joining us from San Jose, California. That was Matt B. Crawford. Thanks to him, and thanks to you for joining. This was Lockdown TV. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.